Welcome to Behaviour RVNs. My name is Nikki and I'm a registered veterinary nurse with a great interest in animal behaviour. I started this podcast because I thought there's bound to be other nurses out there who have a great passion for animal behaviour like myself. But I also thought, well, you know what, there's other people out there who aren't nurses, but people that inspire us nurses in the behaviour world. And I'd love to speak to them too. So this is the first of hopefully many special guest episodes. And boy, what a cracker to start with. Tonight, I'm going to be speaking to Sarah Heath, who is a vet behaviourist and lecturer. And I have learnt from her recently. And I know others out there will learn from her, even just by listening to this podcast. Let's have a listen in. So hello and welcome to Behaviour RVNs and this evening I have a very special guest along. Um, For those that are not in the behaviour world, you may not know of Sarah Heath, but for us that are in the behaviour world, she is definitely one of our idols having already been on a course that she's run and um, Laura we was on the uh, our podcast previously also spoke about Sarah and her wonderful training that she's given us so welcome Sarah. Thank you very much Nikki it's lovely to be here. So for those that don't know who Sarah he says can you give us a little rundown on who you are and what you do? Yes, I'm a vet. That's the most important thing. Um, So, yeah, I qualified from Bristol a very, very long time ago, Um, spent four years working in mixed practice and then um, uh, started to get interested in uh, behavioural medicine, which obviously wasn't really called behavioural medicine in those days. It's definitely evolved a lot since those days. Um, I was very privileged to meet David Appleby, um, who was doing behaviour cases for the practice I joined, which actually 35 years ago was a very forward thinking practice. So, um, yeah, so I started my journey there and now I run behavioural referrals veterinary practice in Chester. We cover um, the northwest of England um, with our face to face consults. So we do behaviour consults uh, within a 50 mile radius, completely house visit based, and then we do them hybrid between 50 and 100 miles and then after 100 miles we do them remote and that's obviously thanks to covid and all of that so that's kind of the practice side of me and then i also write teach do other other bits and bobs so that's me yes one very very busy lady so i absolutely appreciate you taking the time to to do this as well because um i know how busy your schedule is so i know you have already um spoken about behavioral uh, referral services but can you explain um obviously it's not your standard vet practice can you explain what what behavioral referrals does yeah so we're a referral practice for behavioral medicine and pain management so we do both um, because pain and behavioral change are so often linked we uh, started doing pain management quite a few years ago now and we have a physiotherapist on our staff as well um, to deal with that side of things so we, we have three kind of branches I guess to the practice there's the preventative work we do through our positive puppy training classes um, which is positive puppy education we renamed it recently I think that's quite an important change because it's not a training class um 
obviously we advise clients to go on to training classes and um, that's not what we are doing um we're doing much more emotional intelligence work with puppies setting them up for life there is some element of cognitive um, learning in that of course so that we are learning behaviors but they're all behaviors that are important for um life in a really domestic setting so certainly we don't do anything in terms of competitive work or anything like that it's not training in that that sense so that's the preventative side and then we do the behavioral patients who are referred by general veterinary practices um who have presented at their veterinary practice either with a behavioral change which the gp vet has decided they want to refer for investigation or quite commonly they have a medical problem, a physical health problem that the referring vet decides they want some help with emotional support for that individual um, to, to assist in their overall health care. And from that, we get a lot of pain related um, cases as well. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what we do. So we have vets, rehabilitation coaches um, and a veterinary physiotherapist on the team. And then we have a very supportive admin team, of course, who um, make it all happen for us. Definitely. So the, it's not just yourself. There's a big team behind you as well. Yeah, um, so, the best the moment. <laughs> so what actually made you concentrate on being a vet behaviourist rather than general practice vet? Well, I get in. It started, I very much was a, a, a farm vet product as I was going through vet school um, but then as I got into general practice in my first job my first boss was very interested in um, behavior and I'd got more and more interested in um, emotional health of cattle particularly um, and more the large animal side and then started getting interested in what was happening with these pets that I was now seeing in general practice um, and so I never I didn't leave general practice because I didn't like general practice. And I think that's really important. I was having this conversation with someone a few days ago that I think I am still a GP at heart. Um, I feel like a GP, I am a clinician um, and very much a medic, not a surgeon, but I, I didn't leave general practice because I was disillusioned with, with it. I went into behavioral medicine because I believe in comprehensive healthcare and I'm driven very much by animal welfare. And so I wanted to use my veterinary, um, my veterinary degree and my veterinary work to improve animal welfare in, a, in a, maybe a slightly more comprehensive way, not just physical health. But I'm very much a, a, a vet at heart. And so I don't think I've ever left the GP thing behind me. I locumed for a very long time after I specialised, um, but then eventually got so busy that wasn't possible, um, just time-wise. But certainly, yeah, I, d I didn't leave GP practice because I didn't like it. That was that was never the reason. And it's funny because I'm sure I heard you saying recently that somebody did ask you, how does it feel to have left veterinary medicine? But obviously, as you discuss very well, um, behavioural medicine is a very, very important part of veterinary medicine as a whole. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've, I am a vet through and through and have never left being a vet. Would I, I am asked that occasionally. Like, yeah, why did you decide not to be a vet? It's like, no, I, I never made that decision. I'm still a vet, very, very much so. Um, and we see that every single day with the cases that we see, because there is an interplay between physical, emotional and cognitive health at, at every level. And so, you know, you can't divorce those three aspects of healthcare. 
absolutely. That health triad that you forced us to remember all the time during the course that you taught us, definitely. That's ingrained into my brain. <laughs> um, part of the Heath model. So that, I, guess, I guess it's the basis of the Heath model, really, is that exactly. Yeah. Definitely. So, yeah, as you say, you also. Um, Aside from the business, you do a lot of travelling. Um, I believe you've just come back from the ISFM Congress in Dublin, is that right? Um, yeah, one, one, of, one of the best congresses. <laughs> yes, and ISFM Annual Congress is, is a real highlight for me of my CPD year. Um, and it's very much my Congress. It's the one that, that goes in my diary um, very early on, right from year to year. And Walter's already in there for next year. Um, because I need, I, I like to do CPD that's not just narrowly in behavioural medicine, basically because of this interplay and because we are seeing patients with other physical health problems, either concomitantly with, that are not directly related to their behavioural change or are related. Um, but either way, keeping up to date with my feline medicine CPD, and I do quite a lot of neuro neurology and pain management CPD as well, I think it's incredibly important to have that, you know, that comprehensive healthcare approach. Definitely. And I believe you're disappearing off to the other side of the world soon? Yes. Um, yeah, in 48 hours, actually. So <laughs> just squeeze this in before I go. So, yeah, I'm very privileged to be able to do these sorts of things. And I, I mentor RSPCA New South Wales um, and have done for a long time and do once a month online mentoring with their shelter staff um, and I've got the opportunity to go out and spend some time with them um, so I'm going to be doing a conference for them but also some some more hands-on work in the shelters across New South Wales and then get, I've been invited to speak at Science Week um, which is again a great privilege so um, Australia for those things and then over to New Zealand to do some teaching over there so yeah I'm working working down under for a few weeks um, yeah Fantastic. Oh, it's absolutely fantastic. So as a special guest, obviously you're not a veterinary nurse, um, but <laughs> this is for veterinary nurses that are interested in behaviour. And the reason why I wanted to have special guests on is that at the end of the day, it is obviously a vet-led team. Um, in veterinary medicine and behaviour, as you've said, is an important part of it as well. So I did ask the listeners if they could send me some questions to put towards you. Um, so some of the questions that came in, um, there's a lot of them are related to do with um, dog behaviour. So the first one I've got is, do you feel there is a link between a dog's reactivity to triggers and pain that they may be experiencing? And does this turn into a vicious cycle? That's a really good question. And yes, one of the reasons we took pain management in-house and started to offer that service as well to our patients was because of the very strong link between discomfort, pain, chronic pain particularly, and behavioural change. And one of the reasons, of course, is that one of the protective emotional systems is pain, part of the fear-anxiety system. And so when these animals have a painful experience or some level of discomfort that can not only affect them physically and you may see physical outward signs of it but it can also affect them emotionally in terms of their bias so 
as you've heard me talk before, will know I talk about emotions in terms of valence and arousal. So that it can affect the valence bias. So you, you have more protective emotion if an animal is in pain, but it can also affect their emotional arousal level as well and reduce their capacity to deal with other things. So then they can become triggered by sounds or by social environments, um, stimuli or, or whatever it might happen to be more readily because their pain is taking up some of that emotional capacity and giving them less ability to cope with something else. So it's a very complex relationship. It's not that the pain causes the behavioural change necessarily, although it can do, but it can also be that it is contributing to the emotional health status of that individual, making it more protectively biased, making it in higher arousal, and thereby reducing its ability to cope emotionally with other triggers, which may be really diverse. So the ways in which chronic pain and other, other levels of discomfort actually influence behavior is absolutely vast because it's not necessarily a direct causal relationship. And it's true, though, because when you think about it, how many times have you do you have chronic pain and you feel grumpy and miserable? And that's how our animals surely must feel as well. Absolutely. You've heard me say this many, many times, Nikki, but we are just animals ourselves. And we have a very inflated opinion of ourselves as a species, but we are just animals. Um, and therefore, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that other animals that we share this planet with um, also have responses which we would recognize in ourselves in terms of having emotional impact from things such as pain and discomfort. Absolutely, absolutely. Going on to slightly something else, and it is um, something that you've already talked about as well, about training puppies. Somebody's asked, if there's one bit of advice that you would give to training puppies, that people are training puppies, what would it be? One piece of advice for training puppies, oh, no. that is really difficult, isn't it? Um, ooh, support them in their self-confidence. I think that's probably going to be my, my, if I can only give you one piece of advice, because self-confidence is the kind of antidote to anxiety. Um, it's the, the basis of exploration and engagement, which favours engaging emotional bias. Um, and gives them an ability to be resilient as well to what the domestic world throws at them. And perhaps it's also something that isn't easily thought about, especially in, in this sort of, in the world of dog training where there can be sometimes a tendency to think about control in our hands. So the old fashioned word of command, which we no longer use. Um, so being replaced by Q is because when you have that perception of training as command-led and about our control, then actually that squashes self-confidence. And self-confidence, as I just said, is so important for good emotional health. Um, so yeah, I think that if I, I had to give one, I think that probably would be it. And of course, you're being in the moment as well, having already, well, not recently, I mean, she's getting on a bit now, but a young Jamie that we met on the course, you've recently gone through the, the puppyhood again. How has that been? Yeah, interesting, isn't it? 14 years on. So I think we forget how much we have aged since we last had a puppy. So yes, Jamie came into my life in 
August of 2021 and um, it had been 14 years since I'd had a puppy not 14 years since I'd had a dog obviously but um, 14 years since I'd had a puppy and yeah it, with all the the knowledge that you have it's still the emotional impact of that um, is is quite interesting so yeah I mean it was it was hard work for six months as, as it should be and we shouldn't see it as an easy thing we should see it as a commitment um, we're taking a new life under our care um, which is why I like the word caregivers and don't use the word owners because I don't believe we do own them um, although legally that's not the case in this country um, so yes I, I think when you are caring for a a new life in terms of a very young mammal it's no, it's no different than caring for a mammal of any species that they need nurturing and they need caring for and their emotional health is just as important as their physical health um, and yeah it, it's it is hard work but very rewarding and um, yeah she's an amazing companion I'm very lucky to have her. And we were all very lucky on the NSERT course to meet Jamie who was just absolutely adorable and can, I can vouch very well trained as well at such a young age. So staying on the training dog training theme, um, two questions in one here from a listener. What is that one thing you wish all dog trainers knew? Is there anything specific other than the obvious force-free positive methods only that you wish all dog trainers did for the better of canine behaviour? No, I th I th there are some amazing um, dog training colleagues out there who do fantastic work. Um, and obviously we need to have a multi um, professional approach to the wealth, health and welfare of our domestic animals, which I truly believe. Um, and that worked very hard for the last 35 years to, to talk about that as much as possible. Um, but uh, yeah, I think probably what one thing that I would like dog trainers to know, and it's not to know so much as to think about, um, I, I'd like them to always take the canine perspective. So always look at any interaction or any um, goal that you're working towards as a trainer always look at that from the canine perspective so whatever it is you wish them to do so training is a process of formulating behavioral responses through cognition um, what your endpoint is is that an endpoint that is actually compatible with the dog's perspective um, rather than only something that a human would like them to be doing and change days since the days of Barbara Wiethausen, that is showing my age now, um, <laughs> with, with dog training, etc. It's, it's, things have definitely changed for the better, haven't they, as far as dog training is concerned, in a lot of respects. Yeah, unfortunately not across the board, and I think we're all very aware that there are still people who use aversive techniques and there are still people who don't look at it from the dog's perspective and where it is all about control but there are many people now I also remember Barbara Woodhouse very clearly um so yeah we've moved a long way from that I think people like Victoria Stillwell for example I think they've done an amazing job and and, and also someone like Victoria who also has had quite a long personal journey of changing the way she perceives and receiving a lot of education along the way she's worked really hard to you know educate herself as well I think that people like that have done an, a, such a lot of good um for understanding within training and just understanding as well that to be a trainer is a great thing and, and is, is using cognition to change behavioural responses in animals that are you know, mentally and physically well. 
And that is just as important um, as, as what we're doing, which is dealing with animals who are emotionally unwell um, and dealing with illness in their emotion or in their cognition. And obviously as a veterinary job to do, and that is something the veterinary profession should be doing, um, but that the, the things complement each other. Um, so it's really important. To, you know, there's no reason for someone who's a very, very good trainer to to want to be something else, because there is a lot of credit in being a very good trainer. Definitely. And I know previous um, interviews I've had with people on this podcast have spoken so highly about Victoria Stillwell because of what you discussed on our course. Um, and definitely it's been interesting to watch her change over the years as well from the TV star that she was in the beginning to what she does now. Talking of change, what about how things have changed in the feline handling world? Because obviously, certainly when I qualified 20 odd years ago, everything was scruffed, everything was pulled and yanked and for our poor cats. That's changed quite a lot. What's your thoughts about that? Yeah, we've got um, iCat Care to thank for that, or FAB as it was when I was a young vet. Um, so Feline Advisory Bureau, which was then renamed International Cat Care. And along with that are the veterinary wings of that. So ISFM, the International Society for Feline Medicine, is the veterinary wing of iCat Care. And then we also have the sister society in the States, the American Association of Feline Practitioners. And we have them to thank for the massive increase in understanding of feline um, pets and patients. So pets from a caregiver perspective and patients from a veterinary perspective, um, enormous strides forward. And the um, Cat Friendly Clinic Initiative was 10 years old in 2022. Um, and there were new guidelines published and we had a, a big conference in, in Pittsburgh with AAFP and a big one in Rhodes with um, uh, with ISFM um, looking at the, these really massive changes in understanding um, the importance of understanding not just their physical health but also their mental well-being which is a term that's been coined by ICAP care to cover both emotional and cognitive health in one um, but yes absolutely and sadly 10 years on I think we're actually at the position now where dogs are the poor relation in terms of understanding where it's almost turned completely on its head um, from when I was at vet school and, and you were saying in your early part of your career where cats really were treated appallingly um, with very, very little understanding. Um, but because iCat Care has been so amazing in the work they've done, the cat has come a very long way. And I, my personal, if any millionaires listening to this um, or multi-millionaires preferably, I'd really <laughs> to set up an eye dog care charity before I before I die um, so because I think eye dog care as a sister charity to eye cat care is really where we need to go but we need we need a very wealthy backer for that idea so anyone listening to this who has a lot of money loves dogs and would like to help in that mission please do get in touch um, because I really really need it um, and, a, and, an, and an international society of canine medicine as well in the veterinary profession um, so that the dog gets as much attention as the cat has got over the last 10 years, thanks to iCat Care. Definitely. The work that iCat Care have done and continues to do, because even the new guidelines that they brought out recently, I believe you, you were involved with them as well. Yeah, so we, we published two lots um, at the, in 2022 for the 10-year anniversary. So there's the ISFM guidelines on 
veterinary, um, cat-friendly veterinary interactions and on cat-friendly veterinary environment. And the interactions were on Ilona Roden, who's a very dear friend of mine, a feline um, specialist from the States who's very involved with the AFP. And um, one of the things that she was very um, adamant about when those guidelines were being started was that they would re replace the handling guidelines with the word interaction because interacting with our patients is so much more than tactile touch and holding on and our traditional way of clinically examining which is hand-led but instead clinically examining in an eye-led way I think is very very important what are our, our patients canine and feline telling us that we can actually observe rather than grabbing and holding and touching as our first response it doesn't mean that clinical examination doesn't involve palpation of course it does um, but it doesn't have to be the first thing we do and we should be mindful of the patient's perspective of how we interact with them absolutely so going just oh, before sorry. we move just sorry to interrupt just before we move on from that i would just like to say though that bvba and dogs trust um of course launched dog friendly practice um in well last year really in june at uh, um, sorry, this year in March at BSABA, but also in June the year before at BVA Live, um, they launched it for individuals and now they've launched it for practices. Um, so we are making progress thanks to BVBA and Dogs Trust, and I would really encourage people to support that initiative as well. And thank you for bringing that up because the next podcast after this one, we'll be speaking to Tamsin from Dogs Trust to talk about specifically Dog Friendly Clinic, just for the amazing work that they're doing for our canine counterparts. So for this question, uh, staying on sort of behavioural training type things, somebody asked, what are your thoughts for the most ideal form of pet sitting for those looking for someone to look after their pets when they're away, but obviously from a behavioural stance? This is really interesting. I'm just about to go away for seven weeks. So um, this is something I, I'm very familiar with as a, a caregiver of a dog and two cats. Um, so for me personally, it's having them remain in their own home with their own routine, um, with everything around them that's familiar to them. Um, I'm very fortunate that I've been able to organize that for, for seven weeks using four different people. Um, so that they can all stay at home and have their normal routine. And Jamie will have her dog walker and go to the office on the day she always goes to the office and her routine will not change. Um, it will just be that I won't be there. Um, and I think for me that that is really important. I don't want her world to be turned upside down because I'm away. Um, and also for the cats as well. The, the, one of my cats will not be happy on, I think, eight of the nights out of the seven weeks. Um, Jamie's going to go and stay somewhere else um, with someone she's very, very familiar with. And she's been there many, many times overnight. Um, so that means Louis won't have anyone to sleep with and he won't like that very much because Louis does like to sleep with someone. Um, but the rest of the time there'll be somebody in the house um, so they'll all be happy. So yes, it, for me, it is having someone come to the home and keep their routine as much as possible. But I know that's not possible for everybody. Um, so it may be that animals are able, dogs obviously are able to go like Jamie will for some of the nights I'm away and stay with someone very familiar in an environment that they're very familiar with of maybe a family member or a close friend or um, something like that so obviously that that is also possible 
and there are good kennels and catteries um but you do need to look for them so i think again it, it's really about the individual animal and what is important to them and how can that be maintained in the best way possible obviously for dogs it's possibly easier to be in a different physical location as long as the social part of their world is maintained. Whereas for cats, going to somewhere physically different can be quite challenging for them. Um, so, but but not impossible. And I do think it's a very individual decision, um, but it shouldn't be just individual on the base of what the human wants. And I'm very conscious I do, you know, I just make decisions based on what I want, but very importantly also thinking about what those individual animals need to keep them stable what is it that's important to them what do they rely on what makes them happy what can be maintained in the absence of their caregiver absolutely and that's something that I've said to my peers at work recently about how yeah cats are your solitary survivors and dogs are your very sociable um, beings but they're all individuals aren't they and we have to do think about each animal uh, each non-human animal as an individual because just like the human um, animals we are all individual we're all completely different yeah absolutely so there can't be a stock a stock answer for for everybody because they're not yeah they're not little robots um Absolutely. So, yeah definitely so going back to um obviously the main listeners of this podcast will be veterinary nurses that are interested in behavior how can veterinary nurses become involved in animal behavior if they have a strong interest in the subject yeah well i i feel very passionately about vet nurses being involved in behavioral medicine um and improving the service of behavioural medicine within veterinary practices, and that doesn't necessarily mean seeing behaviour cases. So I quite strongly differentiate between general practice behavioural medicine, which is an awareness of the health triad, awareness that every pet has emotional, cognitive, as well as physical health um, needs, and that we um, nurse and we practice as vets in a way that takes into consideration the species specific requirements of our patients. So that to me is behavioral medicine. Um, <coughs> considering, sorry, considering also um, how emotional health impacts on physical health, not just in diagnosis, but also in hospitalization, for example, or in how we care for an animal pre-anesthetic, um, what emotional valence they're in at the point of anesthesia, knowing what we now know thanks to the work of people like Irene Tracy about the impact of emotional valence on things like chronic post-surgical pain risk. Um, so for me, that is behavioral medicine and that is where nurses and vets should all be working in every single practice up and down the land. So I really, really would like to see um, vet nurses having a much bigger role in, in that part of medicine, of behavioral medicine. In terms of taking it to the point of doing behavioural referral work and actually working up individual cases, that nurses um, are often very attracted to that because they are very good at communicating generally. Um, so I think I, my experience of veterinary nurses throughout my career um, has been that they are good communicators, they are people people um, and they're good at communicating with caregivers and that's a very important skill if you're going to deal with behavioural um, presentations because they take a long time to work up but whether that is possible within a general practice 
um, context is very dependent on your employer. It's very dependent on your the, you know, the, the time available and whether or not it's possible to do that within general practice. So if you're not working up individual cases as a vet nurse, that does not in any way diminish your role in behavioral medicine because um, you can be very, very active in behavioral medicine. You can hugely improve the behavioral awareness of your practice um, and the strategies that are used in, in waiting room design and waiting room management and how consults are run and, and what hospitalization looks like. You can do so much um, in terms of, you know, ensuring that your um, potential for inducing physiological stress is as low as possible. Um, and that is a very, very valuable role. So um, how can you do it? Uh, there's a lot of CPD available now for vet nurses, thankfully. Um, there are some courses available for vet nurses as well. Um, additional courses. Um, obviously, just be careful with courses that they are academically recognized in some way make sure that you know there's some validation to the studying that you're doing which you're often also spending quite a lot of money on so just be careful um because there's a lot of variation out there um but certainly yeah there's many routes i think for vet nurses and personally i think you're a very important part of behavioral medicine within the veterinary profession and should be more supported by more courses specifically for the veterinary profession and for vet nurses, but um, we'd like to get it more into the veterinary nursing curriculum, for example. Definitely. And it's been quite interesting speaking to previous um, interviewers that um, a lot of people didn't have, I mean, certainly when I was training 20 odd years ago, I didn't have any behaviour training, but certainly speaking to uh, recent university students there is at least a module coming in um, so I am doing my master's just now at Edinburgh University and speaking to vet school students they're getting behaviour training as well which is such a huge improvement than years gone by. Yeah it's definitely improving um, it needs to be more prominent in the undergraduate veterinary curriculum as well um, but certainly at, throughout the veterinary nursing curriculum, we, you know, that's what we're working towards. And it, we are making progress, but it can be frustratingly slow at times, but we are definitely making progress. Definitely. Um, CPD, I mean, obviously, as a vet and as, as a registered nurse as well, we all have to do certain amount of hours of CPD every year. Um, you've probably answered this slightly already, but what does a veterinary behaviourist like yourself do for CPD? Obviously the ISFM Congress is one. Yeah, so I spend a, a lot of my CPD on multidisciplinary discussions. So Claire Rusbridge, close friend and um, very, very um, respected veterinary neurologist, um, she and I have worked together for a long time discussing cases and actually a few years ago we decided that what we should do is set up something called multidisciplinary rounds for our residents so I had a couple of residents she had residents and we said you know we really should be uh, spending time discussing with our residents um, about neurology for mine and behavioral medicine for yours and you know we should be having this cross fertilization between our disciplines so it started with just Claire and myself and our residents, and it's grown like Topsy. Um, and we meet once a month on a Friday morning with um, pain management specialists, anaesthetists and analgesic specialists, um, with internal medics, with new, a, a veterinary new, uh, nutritionists, 
Um, so it started to grow and other people who we sort of mix with with um, specialists in other disciplines have started going, oh, here, here you're doing these multidisciplinary rounds, can we join? Um, so yeah, it, I think it's it's something that has grown. We have a, a human physiotherapist who is now a veteran physiotherapist. She is amazing and um, you know, her insights can be really amazing things she says are so helpful um and so we talk about cases or we talk about topics or whatever so that's a big part of my cpd once a month um also we do a lot of um i do a lot of webinars through webinar vet um and mainly neurology dermatology so the other areas of, of medicine that impact on emotional health or where in emotional health impacts on them. So I'm particularly interested in those um, because we see them every day in our caseload. And so even though we may not be primarily treating those, we need to be able to converse with our referring vets in a way you know, that we have an understanding of what is happening to that patient or we have an understanding of the medications that they're on, et cetera. So I do use quite a lot of my CPD to get you know, keep myself fresh on other veterinary disciplines. And then also, the college congress so it's a diplomat of the european college and i go to that every year um and also try and attend the american one as well um that one is now online since covid's made that a lot easier so i did used to go to the states more regularly than i do now um so i use those for cpd um and also going to other you know conferences where i'm speaking one of the things that i'm I really believe in is actually listening to everyone else on the program as well and I have had comments about that from other specialist level behavioral medicine specialists saying why are you staying and listening to that but the reason is because there's always someone always says something a slightly different way or has a slightly different intonation about it or you know you're, every day is a school day um, and it's really important to be open to learning even in the field that you are you know I've spent very many years doing this um, and etc but I, you know, you're still going to learn something um so yeah i think there's a various ways we can fulfill cpd as specialists there you go if sarah who's at the top of her uh, profession still can learn something new then that gives a hope to everybody else as well so what what does the future hold for sarah then oh i don't know i'm getting old um <laughs> they yeah i mean like i it's interesting we have these conversations that we, you know amongst friends and stuff and i can't see me retiring um yeah i think at least another 10 years and then realize oh 70 year odd um, that's interesting um so yeah i don't know um vets are not very good at retiring are they um no. we, we tend to want to keep going so um yeah more more of the same um i'm particularly interested in sort of more clinical research with the interplay between different disciplines the practices really healthy at the moment growing i'm very lucky to have some amazing colleagues um i've got two residents carrie tooley is coming to the end of her residency and about to sit the board so hopefully we'll have two specialists in the practice um so yeah i think just uh i'm not sure if there's anything specific on the horizon always open to um what my life might offer um but yeah i think we're the practice is is good um we can always improve we can always expand um and in terms of you know being more comprehensive in our healthcare. but the vet team are great and we, we are recruiting at the moment so um we've got a new vet starting soon um and yeah the 
more of the same and and hopefully still carrying on teaching and I love teaching um travel I've, I've certainly cut back a lot on since Covid um, I travel far far less and I'm also very interested in sustainability in the environment so that also means that zoom um zoom calls are are good rather than getting on a plane um so probably cutting down on travel a little bit from that perspective as well but I don't know if people know but our site is actually completely off grid um and that's been another massive passion of mine and a big project so we're completely solar powered and we have a borehole for water and it's a the site where the practice is where we do all our practical work rehabilitation work and where we do all our vet consults um for ongoing cases and our pain management and that sort of stuff um we've worked very hard there for sort of biodiversity projects so planting hedges and wildflowers and uh, we have veg boxes up there and we have quite a lot of we have foxes and badgers and so yeah it's been it's been quite and we um, it was a very derelict site when I bought it in 2014 and um over those nine years we've we've worked really hard to restore it it was it was a trashed piece of land concreted over largely um with a lot of debris all over it and and now it's flourishing we took a hay cut early this year so we've got two hay cuts off it this year um we've got very established hedgerows and yeah good trees and lots of bird life and buzzards and pied wagtails and uh, swallows and all the rest of it so yeah it's great and, and that is very important to me too wow that's fantastic so in 2014 i had a baby and in 2014 you grew a business so yeah, yeah. <laughs> I bought a, I bought a field. the business was the practice was 30 years old last year actually so the practice has been going on a very long time it was established in 92 um but sorry in yeah 92 um but the um yeah the site the new site the off-grid site was 2014 that's fantastic and just to finish with something that's nothing to do with behavior um, nothing to do with veterinary work at all but I think something that should be talked about as well tell us about your cancer story yes I'm a cancer survivor um, thanks to the incredible work of Clatterbridge Hospital um, which I'm very privileged to live near to um, on the Wirral um, and also to Macmillan Cancer Support, who I think are an amazing charity, and also, of course, Cancer Research UK and all the research that they do. So I had a diagnosis, a late diagnosis, an aggressive um, stationary breast, breast uh, cancer in 2013. Um, so, yeah, I was out, out of out of the uh, working life for about 18 months or so, although I managed to edit a book in that time, but um, while I was on chemo. But I wasn't I wasn't at, at work in the same way as I normally am for a while um I had quite you know quite intensive chemo um and uh, went through the bald stage and all of that so yeah I uh, had that experience I've, I've been left with lymphedema and a, a little bit of damage to one of my lung well a lot of damage to one of my lungs um so yeah but I'm here and I'm very very grateful uh 10 years on it's my 10th anniversary this year so 2013 was the diagnosis um, so yeah, I, I spend some of my time um, helping to support um, other people who are going through similar journeys, um, but also raising money for particularly Macmillan um, Cancer Support and also um, Cancer Research UK. So yeah, I've done a little bit of fundraising over that period of 10 years since my diagnosis and will continue to do so. And you've just recently done the Race for Life, is that right? 
Yeah, we started the Race for Life um, while I was still on treatment in 2014. Done it every year since with a group of, a diverse group of friends. Um, yeah, friends from preschool, friends from primary school, friends from uh, senior school, university, vet life, um, cancer life. Uh, yeah, a very diverse group of us. Um, varies in numbers from year to year. I think 14 of us did it this year um, and we do it differently. Um, so since my diagnosis, I don't run it, um, I walk it, um, but we walk it with yeah, dogs, children, um, big social event. One of my senior school friends, Jane, does it with us every year. She runs the 10K while we walk the 5K because she's just much fitter than the rest of us. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's a great event. We, we really enjoy doing it and it's, it's a very, very important cause. Absolutely. And I will be sharing the link to your uh, Race for Life um, Just Giving page. So if anybody would like to donate, um, I'm sure there's somebody in anybody's life that has dealt with cancer. I know certainly personally at the moment I have a close family friend that is going through this a very similar story. So it, it is very important that we do this research and we have more survivors like yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the work that these people do in research is amazing. It's it's phenomenal. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for a drug called Herceptin. And I remember sitting watching the news you know, when I was a probably a teenager or maybe early 20s and seeing this lady standing on the, the steps of the courts um, fighting for Herceptin to be available to everyone on the NHS because at that time it wasn't available. Um, on the NHS and sadly that lady died but I owe my life to people like her um, and to the people who research these drugs and then campaign to make them available to all so yeah we've come a long long way and we've got a long way to go but yeah it's amazing what the people are doing. Definitely and just like cancer research behavioural medicine has come a long long way thanks to people like yourself Sarah for all the teaching um, that you give to a lot of people in the veterinary profession and I absolutely appreciate you taking the time um, to speak to me in, in amongst all your busy travels and obviously hope you have a great journey down under but just before you go I've got one question left for you. Team cat or team dog? Oh, so, so hard. Um, obviously, you know, I've got both. Um, so I am, I'm in both teams, uh, very definitely. But if, if someone actually said to me, you're only allowed to care for one species, it would be the cat. See a woman after my own heart in so many ways. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much again. I really do appreciate it. And all the best for Tip Down. Thank you. It's many thanks to Sarah for taking the time out of her amazingly busy schedule to speak to me and I, as I said at the beginning, inspirational and I'm sure everybody can learn just purely from the information that she shared tonight with us in this podcast. There will be a link in Spotify and on Instagram to Sarah's Breast Cancer Awareness link for her fundraising if you possibly can please donate that would be absolutely fantastic 
Next time I'm speaking to somebody else who truly is an inspiration as well. I mean, so many people in this profession are just absolutely amazing. And Tamsin Durston of Dogs Trust will be my next guest, talking to us about Dogs Trust itself, dog-friendly clinics and human behaviour and her, her book as well. So join us next time.